Hey friends, this is Linda. Thanks for tuning in to Calling Water. We are starting a new series this week on our podcast about the stories of David in the Old Testament. Each passage we examine together will invite us to ask, what does it mean and what does it call us to do? In today's episode, The Lord Looks at the Heart, we're starting with the story of David being anointed as the next king of Israel, despite him being a rather unlikely choice in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Let's get started. Happy Fourth of July, everyone. It's funny how we often forget that this day is also known as Independence Day, as the significance of this holiday gets obscured by fireworks and outdoor barbecues and sales. I mean, at this point, most of us only know bits about American history as told in Hamilton the Musical. Suffice it to say, though, the 4th of July is the anniversary of the day the United States declared its independence from Great Britain. The Declaration of Independence is a document that outlines the motivations for this action, including a list of unjust measures taken by the Crown. Their mission statement is found in this famous paragraph. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, and so on and so forth. Basically, this country's forefathers wanted the government to be one that looked out for the best interests of its people, which hundreds of years after this document was drafted is still a challenge for this country. We may enjoy some freedoms when compared to other regimes around the world, but as a nation, we still have so much work to do when it comes to truly embodying the fact that all people are indeed created equal. They didn't even believe it when they wrote it. The thing is, Governments, rulers, kings, these are all figures and systems that are guaranteed to be flawed. And I know that sounds pretty hopeless, but simply the fact that these are run by human beings lends to gross margins of error. And it was for this reason God did not grant Israel a king for so long. And these were a people who had experienced the tyranny of Pharaoh, oppression from enemy kings, and the inconsistent leadership of the judges. And yet, the people still rallied for a king. And so, Israel had its first king, a man named Saul. And he was, by all appearances, everything a king should be. But in the ways that mattered, like keeping his personal agenda and pride in check, he was a complete fail. And after subjecting the people to a king of their own design, God was now saying, okay, my turn. Let me pick out a new king for you. And that's where we are in today's text in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The prophet Samuel is being sent by God to anoint a new king for Israel, which God had already chosen. Now, why does God want Samuel to anoint a new king now while Saul is still very much in power? 
And we'll come back to this question, but notice that they keep this entire thing on the DL. Samuel points out that Saul would kill him if he caught wind of what he was doing, to which God responds in verses 2 through 3. Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So Samuel arrives in Bethlehem pretending the sole purpose of his visit is to offer a sacrifice, which he actually does, and accidentally on purpose runs into Jesse and his sons. Now remember that Bethlehem is the hometown of Ruth and Boaz, and Jesse is their grandson. Now Samuel doesn't tell Jesse that one of his sons is about to be anointed the next king of Israel, but quietly he observes each of Jesse's sons, starting with the eldest thinking each one was as impressive as the next. But God warns him not to become enamored with how they seem on the outside. Verse 7 tells us, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And who does God consider to be the one whose heart is worthy enough to become the next king? The youngest of the brothers, a shepherd named David. An unlikely choice altogether. And not because he didn't look the part, because the Bible tells us in verse 12 that he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. No, he was the unlikely choice purely because he was the youngest in a family of seven other perfectly eligible candidates. But when David appeared before Samuel, God spoke to the prophet, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And Samuel does. He doesn't tell David or the rest of the family members what exactly he's doing, although I'm sure they could have guessed what was going on. And David does indeed become king about a decade later. So back to the question, why did God anoint David at this point in time? The period of time between this private anointing and his public declaration as king years later serves as a season of preparation of sorts for David, for Samuel, and even for the people. David, knowing vaguely that something big was about to happen at some point in the future, would be much more intentional in all the choices he makes. And even though he knows that he would be king, he doesn't stage a coup. He lets God work it out in the proper time and pacing. He even works for the present king, becoming both a confidant and later a rival, and becomes close friends with Saul's heir apparent, Jonathan. Samuel gets to watch and vouch for God's choice in David. He had been there and seen all of Saul's missteps, and now he gets to see how David, the man after God's own heart as he is famously known, succeeds where Saul had failed. And the people become increasingly aware that their king is no longer the ruler that they had yearned for. So when David takes the throne, he is beloved and regarded as Israel's greatest king for 40 years. So after going through this text together, what does it call you to do? For me, the first thing is a stark reminder to make God the king in our lives. 
And the concept of a king is a bit antiquated in this day and age, especially since our government doesn't operate on a monarchy. But I think we have read enough books and seen enough movies to hazard a guess as to what it's like to have a king with absolute power calling all the shots. When we put all our confidence in another single human, especially leaders, we will be disappointed. And I use the word leader because I don't want to limit this to politics. And we often become infatuated with our leaders and we don't hold them accountable for all kinds of sins. In most, if not all cases, such leaders either become corrupted by the power they have or won't make efficient use of the power they have. There are too many voices they have to listen to, and they are paralyzed by the constant need to please everyone. Now, only God has the bandwidth to wield such a burden. God, Jesus, is the only king we need to serve. When we follow and worship this king, we will develop the right framework to assess the other leaders in our lives. Not to judge them, no, but to determine to what extent we heed their leadership and know when they are leading us away from what God wants of us. And to build on that point, it's also not our place to judge people at all. Take a listen to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 again. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, we apply this verse to mean that we shouldn't judge a book by its cover, so to speak, right? There's more to each person than meets the eye, so we can't dismiss anyone. And who knows how God will use the person you think is an unlikely choice, including ourselves. And while that is a wise way to look at things, it's also incomplete. Because guess what? The verse says, people look at the outward appearance. Not to say that it's a limitation of some people. No, it's a statement of fact that it is how all people behave. People can only look at the outward appearance. No matter how well-versed you are in psychology and how people think, we can never fully know what's in a person's heart. We can make educated guesses based on their speech and actions, but only God can know what's in a person's heart. This is a critical piece to understand, people, because if we don't, we will no doubt keep putting people like David on a pedestal and making him the epitome of how all followers of God should be. I mean, after all, he's called the man after God's own heart, isn't he? So we start to say, oh, God must have chosen David because of such and such reasons. Why did God choose David over his other brothers? Well, we find out later that David was the one who valiantly stood up to Goliath when his brothers did not, and in fact told him to go home. So is that why God chose David? Because he had integrity? Because he was fearless? Because he was faithful? I mean, by the same token, he was also an adulterer and a murderer, so He's not exactly a role model. The Lord looks at the heart, though. And that doesn't mean that David's heart was better than everyone else's. Again, we can never know what made David's heart the one God chose. It's not our job to decipher the reasons why God does anything. But because God is not a tyrant, 
We can trust his decisions are for a purpose we have yet to understand. We can trust that both the things he allows to happen and the things he doesn't just magic into existence are all part of a grander plan. Likewise, we can trust that whatever God saw in David is what he sees in all of us. And just like what was in David's heart was a secret between him and God, only God knows and only you know what's in your heart. So to rip off the Capital One ads very poorly, what's in your heart? Because no matter how much you do on the outside, it really is what's on the inside that matters. And no one knows what that is but you and God. So today, as we recognize the anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, a document that kind of fell short of representing the kind of freedom they claimed to be fighting for, let's ask ourselves, are we also falling short of representing the kingdom of God we claim to be striving for? How can you make up your mind, or heart rather, to do the kind of work and be the kind of person that seeks God's own heart. Allow God, your one true King, to begin that work in you and unfold your greater purpose in His perfect time. Let's pray. God, what a joy and freedom we experience knowing that you look at our hearts and not our outward appearance because we are so limited on the outside about the things we can do for you, physically, financially, politically, situationally. But on the inside, it's endless the work we can do and the work you can do in us. So instead of depending on people first, help us to submit to your kingship over us, knowing that you are the only truly benevolent king who loves and protects his people. May our hearts be aligned with your will for us so that every thought, word, and deed that spills out of us will be born of a heart that seeks after your own. In Jesus' name, amen.